0: Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner podcast.
1: A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today.
0: I'm Whitney Lowe.
1: And I'm Teluca. Welcome,
0: Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Practitioner. Thinking Practitioner. Hi, this is Whitney Lowe and Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here, and they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession.
1: This is Till. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, physiology. They have all kinds of teacher resources too, as well as student resources at booksofdiscovery.com where thinking practitioner listeners save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. Hey, Whitney. Good afternoon, sir. How are you doing? I am very, very well. Thank you. Yourself?
0: doing well also been on a little bit of a short hiatus here so good to be back with you once again
1: are you gonna tell us anything about that or is that like a secret
0: uh, I think, uh, no, it won't be a secret. At least for me, I took a little bit of time off and went and soaked up some sun and tried to do some mental health time. So I think we all need that every once in a while. So that's, that's yes. what I've been up to over the last couple of weeks. You've been busy, however, teaching a bunch of classes and getting stuff rolling. We, right launched, our,
1: yeah, we launched a big class. I went to Alaska and had a great time in the classroom. All
0: right. And uh-huh. uh, back. In back Anchorage in or where, Anchorage, where were you? Yep. Anchorage. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. That is a beautiful part of the world, and I do miss it sometimes. Used to live there for a while. Oh, I'd but, forgotten uh, that.
1: Yeah, beautiful part of the world, and yeah. hit it just right. We got there three days of fall or whatever it was, right on my weekend. It was yeah. spectacular.
0: Yeah, indeed, a spectacular place. Well, um, we've got an interesting thing happening today. We're going to do something a little bit different than usual, which is I am going to interview you. Oh, I'm so um, so glad. All right. So, uh, you wrote an interesting article for Massage and Bodywork Magazine recently on interoception, and uh, this is a fascinating topic and one that I think a lot of people don't understand real well. And um, I think it's highly pertinent to what we're doing yeah. in our field and a lot of what our work is about. So, yeah. um, I want to talk a little bit more in depth about this and and sort of explore some of the concepts that you brought up in, in this article. So um, that's where our adventure is going to take us today.
1: I'm looking forward to it. How should should we start?
0: Well, let's start at the very beginning with definitions. Interoception is an interesting word. Tell us, what does that mean? What is interoception? Mm -hmm.
1: Intero means interior. Ception, of course, is perception. So it's perception of our interior. And that word has meant different things over the years. It used to be used almost exclusively for visceral sensation, like am I hungry? Is my stomach full? Is my bladder empty? Is my bladder full? But in the last couple decades it's been expanded to mean most any sensation from inside the body. So it's basically internal uh, sensation in its most current usage.
0: Yeah, so you know I know I've I've come across some discussions of, of different terms that are similar Exteroception, I guess, would be then sensations from the exterior of the body. Yeah, like touching something. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's exteroception. So external stimuli like texture, temperature, temperature, those kind of things. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. And then, of course, the term we hear a lot in our field to begin with, uh, the term proprioception. Uh That also is internal sensation in the body. So... How do we? What's the difference between proprioception and interoception?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad we can have these conversations because this is such a minute little geeky detail that my wife just uh, says changes the subject when I try to talk about it. So it's great <laughs> to have somebody to talk to about this stuff. It's important to some of us. Yeah. Uh, the difference between proprioception and interoception is that, well, uh, you know, I guess should say that for years they were used. The word proprioception was used the way interoception is now. In fact, in, during my education in the 80s and 90s, we used proprioception in the way we're using interoception now. Oh, yeah, but the strictest, okay. uh, that might have been just colloquial to our field, but the strictest definition of proprioception is awareness of position in space. Mm-hmm. And that's ex- in the case of proprioception, it's basically your brain figuring out where your limbs are based on joint angle. The basic Mm -hmm. data comes from joint angle, yeah, and that's the narrowest definition of proprioception. While interception, like I said, is expanded to mean just about any internal sensation.
0: Now, in terms of, um, like, wouldn't some of that information about you know position and space again? Well, Uh maybe let me just backtrack a little bit. Does. You know, because we know we're getting a lot of information, for example, from muscle spindle cells about yeah. level of load okay. um, that you know, at a particular joint angle. That is still proprioception? I yeah. mean, it's not necessarily about well, position of space as much as it is, you know, load that it's carrying and things like that. Yeah, that good question. Good spindle question. Spindle activity, that kind of thing.
1: I couldn't claim to speak authoritatively, but I mean, one of the simplest... Divisions really is about location. That's the classic um, mm-hmm. distinction. Proprioception is about location. What location okay. are your limbs yeah. in? Yeah. And uh, interception is kind of the rest
0: of it. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I don't know, the thing you brought up is like the load on the muscle is that, and part of this how you feel about the load on the muscle, how you're mm-hmm. reacting to that load on the muscle. All that gets bundled into the interception puzzle yeah. as well.
0: And my assumption, and we'll, I believe, be digging into this in a little bit more detail, but I also, I kind of assume that some of this gets a little bit fuzzy because some of those the same receptors might be used for both kinds of information. Is that correct? Um, or
1: would you... Oh, s- uh, can we wait till you ask about receptors and talk about that? Yes. Maybe. that's a lot to about We say are going to get that. there. Okay, cool. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, just want to kind of highlight that it's like that seems like it might be one of those things that leads to some of the difficulties in making distinctions is that there is some some crossover with some of those kinds of receptors there.
1: It's uh, receptors, or perhaps it's functions in the brain. Yeah, perhaps it's functions in the brain. Maybe different you know the different functions are accomplished by the same areas of the brain or different team team functions yeah. or network functions. So there may not be yeah. clear divisions. Yeah.
0: Right. So, tell me a little bit about this whole idea. Like, I mean, this is for you and I especially, fascinating kinds of things for us to delve into. And like you said, we could geek out on these discussions for a long time. But yes. let's talk about the the average massage and body work practitioner mm-hmm. in their treatment room. Why would they want to know about this? How does this impact what they're doing on a day-to-day basis with their clientele?
1: Great question. The short answer is because That's the only reason people are coming to you as a practitioner Mm -hmm. is they want to Uh shift in their interoception. They want to feel differently in their body.
0: Yeah. whether you know,
1: no matter what the other motivator is, whether it's stress or pain or just basic self-care, they want a different, uh, interoceptive experience in their body. And that's what they get from their work with us.
0: Yeah. I remember hearing a story, um, from one of my colleagues years ago, about um, this was in in a sports massage environment um, where um, uh, this sports massage therapist was trying to make some inroads in with one of the high level athletic teams. And he was getting some real pushback from the athletic trainers Mm -hmm. and the the staff there. And they were saying like, well, all massage does is make the person feel better. Yeah. yeah Yeah, that's about right yes so that might have an impact on their performance and if they feel better well right and people who
1: feel better perform better and live better and are happier and you know probably throw a fastball better i don't know but yeah Yeah. that's right they're often teased apart or the feel better part of it you could say is even marginalized or even discounted quite a bit as a, a valuable thing in and of itself
0: yeah so this seems like the kind of thing that um needs some maybe i would say like delicate language or some knowledgeable language about the ways in which you might communicate some of this kind of stuff with your clients so when you're working with your clients do you say things to kind of establish what that'll mean for them something like what would feeling better be like for you, or what? What is your goal at the end of our session? What do you want to feel like? Do you do you frame those kind of questions that way for clients, or? Oh, well, that's or, great. Uh, you mean as you a, in a pre
1: them? in a pre session conversation, or in the expectation yeah. setting phase? Yeah, I want to know a couple things. I want to know what feeling they're having now that they that's disturbing them or motivating them to come see me. And I want to, on the mm-hmm. feeling in the moment level. Essentially, the yeah. interceptive or perceptive level. And I want to know, yeah, like you said, what, how, what change they want in that, how they mm-hmm. want to be feeling. And yeah. so the, the exact languaging might vary by the uh, client or the amount of time we're spending with that conversation. But those questions you ask are a good one. But it could be as simple as, can you describe to me exactly th- the thing that bothers you? And then I'll find out, does it, does it uh, is it bothering you now? Is it a present moment experience or are they describing a memory, which is a really different thing to listen to and gives mm-hmm. me really different information? Yeah. And uh, and by the way, I want to write a follow up to that article. The article we're talking about now is three questions for interoception. I'm thinking about doing three questions for proprioception. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Where we'll, we'll break out even more of that kind of pre uh, interview, pre uh, session interview location, quality kind of questions, because those are so valuable too. But you're right, there's a crossover there. And I want to know, like you said, how do my clients feel now? What do they want to be different? Because that becomes my target.
0: Yeah. So does that direct you in a particular direction with the type of work that you would do or the, sure. the approach that you'll take in that session with somebody if they say one thing versus another?
1: Absolutely, I'll bet it does yeah. you too. I mean, from what I know about your orthopedic tests, you do yeah. pain-provoking tests. or you do different sensation-provoking yeah. tests. That's an interceptive test that lets you know under what conditions, under what angles, what movements, etc., provoke that disturbing interceptive experience, the pain. And that yeah. helps you strategize what you do. Or even somebody that works more intuitively, yeah, you get a sense of what it is that's bothering the client and you go f- draw on your innate wisdom or you draw on your knowledge and you try something and you see if it helps. So I think yeah. I think we're doing that feedback loop all the time with interoception. But yeah, right, the promise by making it more deliberate, or understanding it better is that we can get better at it for sure. We can ask the questions yeah. or we can realize what I'm checking in about is how does the client feel or how, does, how has this thing shifted? that we're working with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the article you had uh, something that you ma- that you um, made reference to that I thought was it was semantically I just want to acknowledge just good writing first of all. Oh, <laughs> It was <you. laughs> semantically well done in terms of a concept that you were getting across here talking about improving how you feel or you know learning to feel better, which is like we're not asking people to actually necessarily if I understood it correctly, the way we we traditionally think of feeling better, but you're talking about improving your skill or ability at feeling. If I understood what you were saying. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about that and how, how does one go about doing that?
1: Well, um, I think you're talking about the, uh, this is the piece that got pulled out as a, call out in the article says ironically the hidden key to feeling better is often just feeling better
0: that mm-hmm. is simply
1: refining yeah. the interceptive inner sensation functions of the body sense yeah I mean first of all I owe uh, zenki Christian Dillo uh, an attribution for that he says he said that or at least you know he's the one that told it to me but that's the idea that when we get more accurate in our ability to perceive our bodies when we can attend to the details, we do feel better. We do feel more pleasant. Pain diminishes, strangely enough. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. It's different than just, say, hyper-focusing or getting obsessed with a painful sensation, but when we actually are able to open to the sensation in a way and, in a way, study it from a place of some sort of uh, perspective or even just Simply feel it; it often gets better because so much yeah. of what, yeah, so much of what we are experiencing as pain is both the sensation and the reaction. You could say, both the pressure and the intensity and the unpleasantness, for example. And so, interoception—that concept—helps us tease those things apart.
0: Yeah, when I was reading that section, uh, it really sort of um, rang a bell for me in in sounding a lot like what is described in many of the different types of mindfulness practices, be that you know, meditation or uh, yoga or whatever is your own type of, of mindfulness practice. Would you say that that's kind of similar in terms of tuning into those sensations more completely in your body, listening to the breath and doing all those kinds of things? Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really similar. And it, it, it might be, you know, it's maybe without the trappings of a meditation practice, but it maybe is the essential part of, say, a somatic-based meditation tradition where you're simply yeah. uh, feeling the sensations in the present moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And,
0: yeah. Well, you know, there's there's so many different ways to, um, to engage in that, and I think this is an important lesson um, for all of us in terms of, you know, what a mindfulness practice might look like or a way to help enhance that sense of Inner awareness. It could be all kinds of different things. Um, I remember hearing this story years ago on one of these um, audio tapes from a a lecture by Ram Dass, and he was uh, talking about um, giving this lecture to a group of people. This was in the '60s or something, and they were doing a lot of the you know explorations of. Uh, you know, alternative uh, mindfulness practices and Eastern uh, spiritual traditions and things like that and, you know, experimentations with psychedelics. And he said he was given this lecture and all these kind of young kids in the audience just nodding their heads and really getting into it. And there's this elderly woman sitting on the front row, you know, grandmotherly type. She was kind of sitting there and smiling the whole time and nodding and just like in total agreement with everything he was saying. And he said at the end of the lecture, he just got up and he had to go talk to her. And he said, I noticed that you seem to be really connecting and resonating with a lot of these things. So I was saying, like, I got to know, how did you get here? And what is it that you're doing that lets you kind of connect with what you're doing? And he said that she kind of looked at him with this sort of glint in her eye. And she said, I crochet.
1: (laughs) That's right. You know, That's right. uh, Nice. And so, yeah, it could be anything. And and our mindfulness practice is our work, is this work. We're actually using our sensate experience to uh to be in the present moment and we're helping our clients do the same we're helping them feel their bodies and shift that feeling towards something that's even easier and more uh comforting to feel more nourishing to feel yeah
0: i think that is an undervalued and undertaught aspect of what happens in our work you know when i hear a lot of people talking you know some of the uh, massage discussions on social media and things like that are talking to practitioners who speak about you know getting bored in the treatment room with the things that they're doing with people because they're doing the same kinds of stuff over and over again and yeah I get in some ways that that can sometimes feel a little bit repetitive but if you can turn on the awareness mm. during your work mm. about the fact that what you're doing is really a mindfulness practice and it allows you the ability to take a, a great deal of of your work day to get paid for a introspective kind of personal development process, that's pretty lucky Yeah, um, was, that you can do something like that and have that kind of uh, personal growth and development process be something, uh, a part of your work even. Well,
1: and people talk, it's a pretty open secret that uh, people say, boy, I was having a really crummy day until I went and did that session. Yeah. And then I felt so much better. And some of it's just, uh, again, that grounding in the, our own bodies, coming into sensation, yeah. coming into contact with a human being, but also just following our own bodies and feeling them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because clearly there's going to be a lot of proprioceptive and interoceptive information coming in while we do our work, in addition to the, the right. receiver end of it as well. That's so, right. Yeah.
1: Information, right. but also just time spent. I mean, some of it's bandwidth, but some of it's just duration. We yeah. we just hang out there and feeling, and we feel better, for goodness sake.
0: Yeah, right. So so I want to drill down for just a moment a little bit more technical anatomical with this. You talked in the article a little bit about some of the uh, interoceptive signals converging in the insular cortex. Yeah. Um, so what kinds of signals are converging there? What kinds of information is getting pulled into that area?
1: By the time they get to the insular, some of them have done a couple of hops already. So for sure, it's the it's the uh, signals coming from say somatic nerves in the body that get relayed up the spinal cord, and they have uh, like it's been processed or pre-processed or linked together in different parts of the brain, and then they converge or get synthesized or networked in the insula, which is where you could say it, you know interception is a process of all those things, but the insula gets a lot of the attention because that's the coming together place and the place that mm-hmm. again the brain studies when it's damaged people don't have this sense at all but it's probably a network yeah. phenomena that involves all of those you know, somatic nerves nerves from the periphery spinal cord and then different brain regions coming in but the insula it's classically thought to be associated with uh, pleasant unpleasant the question of valence how, mm-hmm. you know, whether we like something or don't like it, whether we find it plain, painful or pleasant, whether we move towards it or away from it.
0: Yeah. You use that term in the article valence, um, uh, an emotional or effective valence. Can you uh, expand on that a little bit? Tell me a little bit more about what what is that and how do we? Well, that's kind of a geeky word.
1: Yeah, it's one of those mm-hmm. neuroscience words that talks about something that we all know about, but talks about in a very specific way that might be kind of helpful. Mm -hmm. Valence is again that. It's not quite emotion. It's more like, do we like it? Is it pleasant, unpleasant? Mm -hmm. Do we move towards it, or away from it? Maybe you mentioned mindfulness, maybe on those terms it's basic uh, attraction or aversion. Do we actually open to something or do we feel like we need to protect from it? It's not the same as, say, the amygdala, which is assessing threat. And basically, you know, one model of the uh, the, uh, amygdala is that it basically decides if something's threatening or safe. The in the uh, uh, insula is more about do I like it or do I not like it,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so a lot of this is onto your question about receptors, a lot of the signals from many different kinds of tissue or body-based receptors converge there, and get sorted and processed. And basically, it's the insula that has the key job in saying, is this good for me or not? Do I mm-hmm. do I you know am I, do I like this or do I need, need to withdraw from it? And that includes temperature. That includes pressure. That includes itch. That includes uh, many kinds of pain. It includes pleasant touch, too. All of those are getting sorted out in the insula.
0: And I would assume there is a, a corresponding, very comprehensive and thorough integration with the individual's emotional experience about the personal interaction with their therapist and the person that they're working for. We've learned many times over the years that that is probably the most important element in any therapeutic encounter is that client therapist interaction and relationship. Um, totally. Because, yeah. In fact, you know, keep going. No, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, there's so much emphasis in all of our, you know, continuing education courses and things like that on techniques and modalities. But in reality, the same exact technique performed by two different people can have two very different experiences by that particular individual just based on the interaction or the energy sort of exchange between those two practitioners.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The emotional tone there determines the therapeutic outcomes in so many ways. And it's probably a little bit, but not too much of an oversimplification to say that valence or that, you know, do I like it or do I not is the basic building block of emotions. That mm-hmm. that is what the emotional reaction to the work comes from is that basic assessment. It's not quite yeah. emotions yet, at least in the way that they're being talked about uh, in neuroscience. It, it, emotion has a lot of context and meaning and uh, all associations and all those kind of things woven into it as well, and bodily reactions. But it's just that basic, fundamental assessment: uh, can I open to this, or do I need to protect from it? That's happening there. At the yeah. Minnesota?
0: So. For the practitioner, you know, in terms of trying to get a practitioner to be better skilled at some of these kinds of things, these are things that are really difficult to teach um, in, you know, a lot of what we do with sort of our our entry-level education training. So, do you have any suggestions for um, how a person goes about developing better skills and abilities to connect or resonate with a client to enhance that effect? Uh, in their treatment session with somebody?
1: That's a good question. And I don't, I want to take a step back. Uh, I was getting all wound up to talk about predictive processes. So I want to bookmark that to come back too. But in terms of how we actually teach it or how we learn it, we say a lot. I've caught myself saying it, that this is difficult to teach. I'm not so sure, honestly. I'm not so sure it is. And I think we probably do a much better job of teaching it and learning it then we realize because uh, you know we're doing good work and people going through this profession are doing amazing work, they got it somehow. I think it's difficult to break down in cognitive linear terms, perhaps.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: that are, and then as soon as we start to apply the lens of measurability and reproducibility and things like that, yeah, it's not the friendliest topic in that realm, but it's a very friendly topic in terms of embodiment, practice, and experience. We probably yeah. get a lot of this through uh, instinct, but also through emulating people that we see doing it that are, are that resonate with us on our own affective level. Like, oh, that looks good. I want to, I want to do it like that. And so we do yeah. it like that, and that works really well. That's probably you know the way we're learning these kind of skills as much as mm-hmm. anything. Yeah, but then I think at some point, uh, you know, in my own probably. Graduate level studies, I started to break it down in conceptual ways and understand oh, here's where I'm strong, here's where I'm less strong, and here's where I see my students really able to do things and less able to do stuff. And then we can start to fill in the blanks. That is more of a cognitive, uh, analytical process of that assessment and filling in. But even then, it comes down to, uh, you know, just being a mensch, just being there, just like feeling it, just being it in yourself so often.
0: Yeah. You know, that was kind of my sense of that. I think so much of this, and this is sometimes I think a little bit more challenging for some people to get, you know, when when people have asked me about this or we've had discussions about this, I've said, you know, uh, quite honestly, I I believe that a lot of this has to do with the work you do on yourself um, in terms of You know, being that thing and exactly what you said, too, about emulating those that you feel like do a really good job at looking at the way in which they interact with people or the way in which they uh, interact with uh, clientele and that sort of things. But, you know, doing work on developing both compassionate listening, compassionate interest, compassionate touch, those kinds of Mm -hmm. things go a very long way towards uh, helping enhance the effectiveness of those very, very powerful factors in in our treatment processes here.
1: So it's great to have models, people that we have experienced that do that, but it's also making me realize uh, it's great to have experiences of the need for that because so many of us come to the work from our own uh, pain, either physically, having been in the place of a patient and worked with people that inspired us or worked with processes that helped, and we get inspired to help people in other ways or uh you can say relationship pain too finding you know finding mentors who were healing in a sense of our capacity to learn our capacity to do good work those kind of relationships that come you know, through this learning process or would end up inspiring us and they probably there's probably an interceptive aspect to all those things people our teacher, our good teachers helped us feel better in our bodies yeah, they gave right. us a, a somatic experience of well-being and feeling good and that uh Inspired us, motivated us, healed us in some ways.
0: Yeah, right. Um, you mentioned a moment ago you wanted to come back to saying something about predictive processes. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll give you that cue there so uh, we don't lose that. Tell well, me about it's, that.
1: It's, again, it's one of those simple ideas that we could get. Uh, I'm, wish me luck. I'm going to try to keep it simple. Uh, okay. We've been talking about it like signals from the body converge on the insula and produce interoception. It's probably not that way. It's the inter the insula is a predictive uh mecha- part of the brain and the networked processes there are predictive, meaning they are gonna they predict what I'm gonna feel Base, oh, based based so on
0: little cl- Previous experiences previous and experience, like that. context,
1: yeah. expectations. And then I get a little bit of data from my sensory nerves to validate that prediction. But much of yeah. that sensory data can be ignored or irrelevant. And so there's right. yeah there's very little of the sensory information that I might even be reacting to to have a whole uh, insular experience or to have a valence experience to have a pleasant unpleasant experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, that so, includes you know, well I'm sorry, all the contextual factors how the smell is for example yeah how they looked at me what I was doing before I came in all those things kind of predispose my entire being to respond to a particular touch, you know, as as pleasant or as unpleasant. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So we made some references early on to wanting to to talk a little bit about some of the specific cells that are associated with this. Uh-huh. So are there, I know we've got like with proprioception, there's a lot of focus on muscle spindle cells, Golgi tendon organs. Are there particular interoceptive cells that are sort of uniquely classified for producing those kinds of sensations in a similar fashion?
1: Not that I know of. Yeah. Because of what I just said, because it's, it's a convergence of cells from all sorts of, body, or you could say there's any list of sensory uh, receptors, yeah. including muscle spindles, perhaps, but for sure, including uh, Ruffini, uh, Patini, Meisner, Golgi, all those tissue receptors. Yeah. Are sending information to our brain, some of which gets processed by the motor and sensory cortex, which we talked about in our homunculus episode. And now we're talking about a different part of the brain, the insula, deeper, farther forward in the brain, that basically decides, do I like it or do I not? So no, there's not a do I like it or do I not receptor. There's yeah. a do like it, or do I like it do or not function in the brain, and the insula is the kind of star of that function. Yeah.
0: So let me ask this question about that process of of comparing the information again between the client's lived experience and the therapist's um, work experience in you know working on that particular individual. Uh, do you find that there's uh, instances or situations in which the client's lived experience may be almost counter? Uh, you know, in opposition to what the therapist is indicating. So for example, you're working on somebody in a certain place and they say, oh man, that feels like really hard or really tight or something like that. But yeah. what you feel under your fingers is not that. Um,
1: That's such a good and, question. I got to go with it. Even yeah. though I want to asterisk going back to my last answer and talk about c tactile afferents. Yeah. But anyway... Yeah, lived experience. We feel something in the client. That's they go. Oh man, is that tight? And we go. Really? That's is that what you're talking about?
0: Yes. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, that's the. I mean, in my my article, I asked the question, whose interception is it anyway? Yeah. And uh, we use as practitioners, we use our own interception to have an empathetic experience with the client all the time we use our tactile or our exteroception faculties to feel their tissue and then we use our interoception to essentially come up with a prediction about what that means yeah what they must be feeling we we get get really really good at it you know all the time we get people saying wow how did you know i hurt right. there uh-huh. or wow yeah. you found it before i even knew i had it or whatever it is that's that process at work where we're combining our tactile skills with our interoceptive skills and helping reveal to people's awareness their own body, their own interceptive richness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, but that's us. That's our process, the feeling of the tightness and the deciding it hurts. On the client side, it's just their experience. It's just their interceptive process of deciding whether something feels good or not. And so that could be really different than tissue tightness. This is the whole tissue debate, isn't it? Is tissue quality synonymous with how it feels? Sometimes, but often not. Yeah. So that even if I feel something hard from the outside, it doesn't mean it necessarily feels a certain way on the inside. Yeah. It's pretty good to guess, but I would say, hey, I would say when I feel something tight, I'm actually predicting based on lots of contextual things, including the actual grams of pressure I'm having to use to get it to dent, but maybe that's just one small part of it. Mm. I'm predicting, oh, this is probably one of those places that feels sensitive based on all these other things.
0: Yeah. And so we often have to make the decisions about, do we feel the necessity to do something with a particular area if it feels a certain way to us, and it may right. or may not feel a certain way to them? Right.
1: So yeah. I ask the basic question, uh, is your job description meat grinder? In which case, yes, grind it all up, make it all soft. Yeah. Or right. is your job description something else, something about helping people feel better? In which case, retarget the, proprioce- or the proprioception, the interception, the sensation, yeah. the inner experience, and work with that.
0: Yeah. So along those lines and I got another question around this in terms of how the the client's experience, you know, might govern the way in which we work. There are those people who have, you know, certain types of areas in their body that they like to have worked to the point of what we would consider pain or discomfort uh-huh. and that feels therapeutically beneficial for them. Yeah. Um And so how does that, you know, kind of like, how do we sort of judge when are we going into the point of Uh doing something that might be therapeutically not so beneficial versus a person that feels like they need something like that to really get the resolution that they're looking for?
1: There's probably a tissue answer. There's probably an ethical answer. There's probably a sociopolitical answer. There's probably lots of answers to that question on the tissue level. Uh, and that's not separate. This is probably the least important one, but it's the, maybe the easiest one to answer. Uh, on the tissue level, my own guideline is, does it, is it sore later in a way that disturbs the client or in a way that persists? If it was, I use too much pressure. I injured yeah. them. I damaged them in a way that they don't recover from quickly enough. Now there's lots of nuance to that as I go in, as, you know, as we do in our work, we go into that and we find ways to either... Uh, nuance that or work up to it or maybe, you know, contextualize it. But that's the basic answer. Are we injuring them? Yeah. And and the sign of that is feeling worse later that doesn't resolve quickly enough.
0: Yeah. So, well, what if we compared that, for example, to, um, you know, a heavy-duty workout where a person is sore the next day? Yeah. It's not necessarily damaging. It might be right. good that they exercise those muscles which haven't been worked in, you know, six or eight months. And yeah. uh, sometimes that post-treatment soreness might be well because these muscles have not been, you know, addressed or mechanically loaded, stressed in a way that you know pushes them closer to their limit. And maybe there is some therapeutic benefit in in that to some degree. Right.
1: So there's two uh, two yeah. things. I've heard that analogy a lot. Like, well, it's like working out and sometimes, yeah, sometimes maybe not. The difference there is, does it disturb the client? Is that what they're okay with? Did they contract with you for that? Do they expect it? And, and does it resolve? Is it like a workout where you feel even better each day that goes
0: on beyond that? Yeah. Yeah. That certainly makes sense. So, um, you know, that kind of, um, brings up some of these other things, uh, I want to ask, too, if, is there, a, is there in, in your sort of experience or perspective in looking at this, um, anything that a practitioner might be doing that would be, I don't know how to phrase this, interoceptively damaging? Like, is there a way to do bad Oh yeah, analysis or interaction with, with an uh, individual from that perspective? Sure. Uh, Tell me about that.
1: Anything that hurts more than the client wants it to uh-huh. is interoceptively bad. Yeah, <laughs> You could also, uh, you could make the argument too that um, maybe, uh, I guess it's more of a value judgment, maybe working so aggressively that the client gets desensitized to the nuance is not helpful, Yeah. you could say. But you could also say that working so subtly that the client doesn't perceive any benefit is, uh, is, a, is a waste of their money and time and resources. Yeah. So who knows? But it's basically yeah. The damage we can do certainly is all the damage we can do with our work, which is injuring people physically, or you know, if we get into the ethical part, there's all the body image, can you know, concerns and all that kind of thing too. But that's that's less interoception probably, and uh, maybe different parts of the body, or different parts of the body uh, awareness, the body sense. Interestingly, though, uh, while I'm on that topic, interoception. Uh, some people are better at it than others just in terms of the measures we have for it. Uh, one quick measure is pulse detection and that's used a bunch in research. It's an interesting one. It's a question can you feel your own pulse without touching your wrist or your neck or something like that? Can you feel oh, uh-huh. yeah, can you feel your own pulse from the inside out just sitting there quietly and breathing interesting yeah. And there's some I really have to sit here and think about uh, yeah, well, let's I just let's that. do that while I talk about that just see if you can feel your own pulse. There's some really simple measures of taking your own pulse and then comparing that to like a pulse uh, meter or something that took a measured pulse, and you get a measure of accuracy. Mm -hmm. And so people have really different scores, and they tend to have really high scores or they tend to have lower scores in their life. And people that tend to have lower scores have a higher incidence of things like body dysmorphia, meaning... uh, feeling like you look really different than other people think you do. Like, I feel like I'm really uh-huh. fat. That's also yeah. that's correlated with really low uh, uh, interceptive scores, certain kinds of eating disorders, a few things like that, are correlated with low interceptive scores, which gives us a clue that you know there's lots of dimensions to, these, to this question of the body, how I am in my body and how I feel like I appear to the world. Part of it is yeah. from the inside out.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. And it might so be,
1: with- uh, well, I'll just say, it might be related to the role the insula plays in, in uh, self-awareness and in sense of self. That just psychologically, the sense that I have of being an individual, being a person or being a being, is uh, thought to be largely the in- insula's function because in people that had the insula damaged, there's not that sense of being a separate, discrete individual in a way. With the idea being interesting. That, yeah, yeah, the idea that we construct our sense of self from, in, amongst other things, our somatic sensations, our bodily sensations, knowing that, our, yeah. or not just sensations, our somatic valence, our sense of like, am I at ease or am I
0: at, not at ease in my body? Yeah. So again, it, it sort of comes back to a, a whole big picture process of, of it's it seems like a, a very highly complex jigsaw puzzle of pieces of information that are all having to come together to make the picture work correctly.
1: Yeah, I think that's what my wife's saying when she politely changes the topic. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like it that you keep asking about how are we going to use this? Because that's, yeah. that's what really counts.
0: Yeah. So is this something, um, in terms of you know your clients, in terms of working with them, obviously you probably see different levels of of interoceptive awareness amongst your clients. Some people who seem to be super, super tuned in to what's going on in their body and some people that, you know, it's that client that's on the table that, you know, they just feel all tight and wound up and you might say something about encouraging them to relax and they say, well, I am relaxed. You know, that is their sense of, that's what relaxed feels like in their body. So is this something that you like might try to aim to improve or change with somebody in a session as you're working with them?
1: Absolutely. Every yeah. technique. And I, it's yeah. like people ask, okay, so what do I do when I lift up their hand and their elbow stays straight in there? Yeah. And my, there's lots of ways to work with that, but my basic answer is that is your work right there, is bringing someone's awareness to their body enough that they can relax the elbow or they can feel how it's hard to relax or whatever it is. But that feeling process that you bring someone into is the therapeutic intervention. Yeah. And it might be shaking, it might be stroking, it might be talking, it might be humming, it might be lots of things, might be slowing down, might be repeated interventions, might be drawing their attention to it. But all those are ways to essentially refine interoception so that someone can tell, am I relaxed
0: or not? Yeah. And they'll, all those different things may not be specific um, outcomes that they came looking to improve, but I think those are things that will all play a big role in their, feeling their eventual lived experience of of feeling better and, and feeling, that, that treatment was successful. That That practitioner does really good work that helps me feel different and wonderful when I come out of there.
1: Absolutely. Now something yeah. you said too about some people just seem to come in with a lot of interceptive, uh, you know, talent or something like that. and Others less so. Made me think of athletes. The you know, I'm working here in the Boulder area. Lots of high level athletes, and um, well, all different levels of athletes, including myself. Uh, it makes me. I'm just totally gonna make this up. First time I've ever thought it. First time I've ever said it. So I don't know if it's gonna stand the test of time at all. but I bet it's possible to be interceptively refined but pro- but proprioceptively not and the converse. You can be proprioceptively okay. a genius and interceptively uh, tuned out. Uh-huh. And so yeah. extreme events or you know athletics to any level it requires some degree of overriding your impulses to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, overriding your unpleasant assessments you're getting from your body, or reframing those as like this is really going to help me push that time or something like that. Yeah, and then so at some level, at some point, that can go too far, where you can really mm-hmm. uh, and the, the question of what is too far is going to mean something really different to a marathon runner than to me, and yeah, to, and I don't know about where you are in that continuum, but everyone has their own definition of what too far is. Yeah. And so it's classic. To, so you know, be working with high-level athletes and say, "Whoa, they are so in touch with their body," in a way. Huh, yeah, in a way,
0: right? Yeah, because there might be such a hyper focus on a certain aspect of that, like you know, the the capability to be able to make that um, you know basket from half court out. You uh-huh. know, has been practiced so many times. That's a Highly, super, highly refined proprioceptive type of skill, right? But that might, yeah, you know, maybe that there's a certain amount of brain capacity that has said, you know, well, at a certain point, we have to give up something else to be able to have that kind of tune into the Uh the proprioceptive channel. Just to put
1: in those many thousands of hours of practice means I had to override some sort of basic functions there, yeah. As well as probably based on being a certain amount of joy in that too, of actually following some sort of interoceptive well-being that that gave as well.
0: Right. Yeah. So, you know, and the, the educator part of me is also curious about this, and I don't know, it's just a, a question that I'm curious about, like um, using a framework like uh, Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences theory, you know, and looked at the different types of intelligence that people have. I'd be curious to know if those people who have sort of a highly developed kinesthetic intelligence are more interoceptively tuned in? They're the ones that we would say like really tuned in or are they, um, you know, is that something that just doesn't have any kind of correlation? Great with? So question. Curious to Great question. That. Yeah.
1: No idea. Yeah. I mean, I know that just in say, you know, I've been like you've been studying this for a few decades now, but maybe more formally, more in depth in the last decade. I know just in that time, there has been an enormous amount of new research coming out that, We used to, you know, 10 years ago, I could say there are no studies on this question. Now there's some that are actually starting to build up where we have measures for interoceptive refinement and we have ways that we're starting to correlate that with things and seeing relationships that we didn't understand before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So... Wow. Fascinating kinds of things to to chase ourselves into here down down the uh interoceptive rabbit hole. And uh for those of you who have not seen or I'm not sure if it's gonna be out by the time that this episode comes out. Uh, yeah, it'll we'll be take November, December
1: yeah. issue, which I think comes out sometime in October for massage yeah, and body okay. work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do take a look at that um article and there's a great piece and uh You know, I thank you very much for delving into this. I was uh, really happy that we had a chance to kind of explore this in a little bit greater detail here.
1: Yeah, me too, Woody. I'm glad you were uh, open to the conversation because I had a lot of fun writing the article. It helped me for myself kind of summarize and articulate a bunch of different ideas. Yeah. And uh, your questions really got me thinking too. You're, I just I got to go back and stick in that asterisk. I know we're here at the end, but maybe it's like a footnote. And that's like uh, the sensory que- sensor question. I said yeah, it's a network. It's not a sensor. I realized yeah. the exception might be C tactile afferents, which are there's been some interesting research again in the last decade that shows that there are specific nerve endings and nerve pathways that evoke a pleasant response in the mm-hmm. brain. And those were originally identified more on hairy parts of the body, the back of the arm, you know, things like that, where a gentle touch or the head, a gentle yeah. touch of us, they got it calibrated down to exact pressure, exact speed, evokes more of this pleasantness sensation. So there does yeah. seem to be, a, a in that case, a mechanical trigger to that. Mm-hmm. But even there, we're just, there was a study just out in the last six months or so that says, oh, we found some. There tact- oh, sorry, some a- tactile afferents in deep tissues too. So it's not just the surface, which was the first ones that were mapped out pretty extensively. But it turns yeah. out that there are these types of receptors all through the body that tend to produce that affective touch, which has got its own class of nerve fiber and its own class of reaction too. But basically, it's, it tends to trigger that positive uh, affect, a positive valence in the insula. Yeah. One more. This is like the double footnote. We switched from asterisk to little crosses or something like that. Yeah, it's all right. You know? okay. uh,
0: the double cross, yeah. That's
1: right. Uh, the distinction between um, ple- uh, pleasantness and intensity is a really useful one in sensation in general. And some of the early THC research of THC and pain, the active ingredient in cannabis, suggested that cannabis was really good at reducing the unpleasantness, but it didn't have a significant impact on intensity.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Now, that, that's,
1: yeah. That's, that research is inconclusive, but basically there's an interesting thought to think we can reduce someone's unpleasantness of experience even when it's just as intense. Yeah. And I think our work does that a lot. I think our mm-hmm. work it reconceptualizes or reframes how people respond to a sensation. Yeah. Even if the sensation is still just as strong.
0: Yeah. Which might be some of that hurts good thing that people like with certain types of, of body work that they feel like really benefits them. I know I have that sensation, you know, when my back is really tight and I've been, you know, doing a bunch of work in the yard or things like that and I work on myself with a massage tool or something like that, I'll put pressure on there that is you know, I would say it is painful, but it hurts good in a way that feels like it gets a good mm-hmm. therapeutic outcome. Yeah. in there. Yeah,
1: could be, or it so. could be triggering some descending modulation. But it, yeah. it's also it's also what happens when we understand pain a little better and understand that pain isn't always tissue damage, and so we're yeah. just not as upset by that soreness we get after working in the garden or whatever. We just know, okay, yeah, this is my body getting right. used to that activity. Yep.
0: Yeah. So. Just
1: as intense, not as disturbing indeed thank you you, whitney thanks for the conversation today
0: yes absolutely well thank you sir wonderful to have this and and i would again uh, encourage people to go take a look at that article and explore these ideas a little bit with yourself and explore some methods that you might use in your own practice to help enhance your own interoceptive awareness uh, because i really honestly believe this will have beneficial impacts on your client results too um, Mm. in the things that you'll be doing with them so absolutely Tune in. And thanks
1: to our uh, sponsor, Books of Discovery, for the opening sponsor. Our closing sponsor today is Handspring Publishing. And when I was looking for a publisher, uh, I was fortunate enough to have had two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring Publishing, a small press in Scotland run by four great people who love great books and who love our field. To this day, I'm glad I chose to go with them, Handspring, because not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness.
0: And Handspring's Move to Learn webinars are free 45-minute broadcasts. Featuring their authors, including one with you, Till. Hmm. Over, uh, So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. And do be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. And thank again, Handspring, for sponsoring the podcast.
1: That's like a 20% discount, I just realized. That's like significant. That's cheaper than Amazon. It is. When I go look at that, it's cheaper yep. than
0: Amazon. Indeed. So we would like to say a thank you to all of our sponsors and a special thanks to all of our listeners for hanging out with us as well hope you've uh, enjoyed the conversation today and learned a few things you can stop by our sites for show notes transcripts and any extras uh, you can find that well with me on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that through you?
1: Advanced-trainings.com, just on the blog link or the podcast uh, menu item there. If you have questions or things you want to hear us talk about, uh, guests you'd like us to interview, et cetera, email us at infothethinkingpractitioner.com at or look for us on social media. Just me at my name, Till, Luca, and you, Whitney.
0: Uh, also on social under my name uh, on uh, at Whitlow on Twitter. You can also follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you happen to be listening. Please do tell a friend about that. Uh, it does help get the show uh, noticed and spread around a little bit. And of course, as always, if you're unable to find us in any of those locations, you can synchronize your body's interoceptors with the Aurora Borealis, and you can hear us there. Wow, that's I'm gonna do that. Gonna do it. Yeah, do it. Thanks for so, me. All right, so that'll do it for us uh, here. We'll see you again in two weeks. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks again so much.
1: Likewise. Bye for now.
0: Okay.